Can you believe it is already December? I am starting to wind down and head into my cave for my long winter's nap. This may be the last podcast of the year. We will have to see. So don't hold your breath for another episode before 2023 is here. Additionally, I want to share with you that Elemental Whispers Essences is officially fully moved on the DMIRAROSE.com site. The store is open, active, ready to engage with you. You will notice as you go on there that the store, many essences there are highly discounted, anywhere from 20 to 50% off. I am running that until the solstice. So the last orders will be taken and received on when I'm sorry, the solstice is Wednesday, December 21st. So I will take the last orders the day before on Tuesday, December 20th. Then the store will close for a long winter's nap, at which point it will reopen and look very different. And that is because I'm changing the way that elemental whispers are going to be shared in the world. I want to share them in a way that resonates more with me and my style and also the uniqueness that they are. And also I want to help you all because I think that having so many essences can be a little confusing for the layperson, for the person who is not super familiar with these vibrational medicines, with these energies. And I want to make it more accessible, more approachable, and also more simple. And I think that the way that I'm going to be sharing them will do that. So if there are some essences that have been calling to you, definitely get those before the solstice hits. And the reason for that is because a lot of these essences are not going to be available. Some of them are going to go away completely. And I mean not just the ones I mentioned in the Holy Death episode, but actually I have gone further with selecting and refining and paring down the collection so that it's going to be a very honed, potent, but small collection that will be available. And then the rest of the essences are going to not be available on a regular basis and they will appear and rise up from the waters of New Avalon during certain portals throughout the year, seasonally, or some of them will only be available in the context of a group container or journey or program that I'm leading. So that is how Elemental Whispers Essences is going to be shifting in the new year. And so if there are essences there that you really been thinking about getting and they've really been calling to you, then definitely do not wait on that. Okay, so today's episode is not only going to excite and inspire friends and fans of Initiation, My Fairy Soul Awakening, which is my most newly released book and memoir, that is available on all book channels. So if you haven't grabbed a copy yet, then I invite you to hop on over to your favorite retailer and get yourself a lovely and magical story 
to stoke your creativity and your heart of enchantment during this holiday season. So not only for fans of the book, or should I say already fans of the book, but also going to inspire those of you out there who just love hearing about the creative process of an artist or writer. I consider writers artists. Or also if you are considering birthing a book yourself, or you've already started writing a book, this is going to give you a sprinkling of tips and tricks of the trade that I've learned along the way and I would love to share with you. So there's a little something for everyone. And what we are going to be talking about in today's episode is I have compiled a list of questions that I have received over the last at least year, maybe last couple years, questions that have been asked to me by friends, fans, people who have written in and asked questions, or they have just come up in conversation about the book itself, the book material, the story itself, as well as about my creative writing process. So I'm really excited to share this because I've talked about doing this episode for a while now. So grab a cup of tea and maybe even a notebook because there might be some tips that you want to make sure you write down. And by the way, don't worry because I don't really give too many spoilers. So I think that even if you haven't read the book yet and you're planning to, and I hope you are, then you won't ruin anything by listening to this episode. All right, enjoy. Welcome to Elemental Whispers, a podcast dedicated to creating pathways of remembrance through the sharing of personal experiences and real-life sacred stories of working with the community of other world beings for healing, growth, and joyful enchantment. I'm Diamira Rose D'Agostino, and this is my gift to you. A podcast that is really meant to be a doorway. May it illuminate this pathway of magical remembrance. May its medicine of enchantment guide you in your elemental journey of soul, earth, and spirit. The first question is, did I always know I was going to write a book? there's a second question, how did writing the book unfold for me? I didn't always know that I would write a book, but I knew pretty early on. I sat down to write the book quite a number of times, specifically when I moved back from living overseas. That was when I really knew I wanted to write a book. I remember during my Saturn return, so that's when we're turning around 29, I was sitting down to write the book 
for the second time. And what I mean by second time is each time I would get about 12 or 13 or 15 pages in and then life would happen and I would get caught up in other things. Now the question is, did those pages end up in this book? And the answer is no, they did not. I've heard so many book writing experts talk about the book before the book, (laughs) meaning that a lot of us just need to write some things that either have happened that are part of our journey. And the writing is for us more than it is for anyone else or an audience. It helps us get it out of our body. It helps us clarify. It helps us really um, actually figure out what we do want to write. And so each time I ended up writing these 12 or 15 or 20 pages. And I talked about some early childhood stuff. And I talked about topics that would not have made sense to go in this book. And that was as far as I got those first few times. I also, there was a key error. (laughs) It's not an error because there are no mistakes in writing. As I said, it's really a healing process. But what I mean is that there was, there is a difference between an autobiography and a memoir. And I did not know this. I learned this much, much, much later. But an autobiography is a chronological detailing of, of an entire person's life. A biography and the autobiography is right about them themselves. So that is very different than a memoir. A memoir tells a certain story. It does not detail all of the moments of one's life. It There's so much that cannot go in the book. You really focus on a particular angle or a particular theme. In my case, it was my fairy soul awakening, what that journey leading up to that was. And yeah, it's it, mine is about the early spiritual journey and all of the <laughs> fumbling and trials and tribulations that that really entails. And then the beauty as well of the sacred holy soul remembrance. So that was the point of my book. And that being said, in the example of my book, there were so many details that happened throughout my life that might somebody find interesting, maybe, but they don't, they wouldn't have moved the story forward. They're not necessary to include in the book. You would be bored to tears if somebody like myself wrote all of those details in a book and created some sort of autobiography. What I learned is that the only people that really sell autobiographies successfully are people who are famous, people who everybody knows. And so they would care about the early details of their childhood, (laughs) what they ate and how they slept and goodness knows what else. But for most of us average folk, 
more than likely, unless you're a famous person listening to this, like I said, a movie star or a famous politician, you know, presidential level, then you are going to want to write memoir. And for a memoir, you really need to have a theme that you are working with, a theme and a point that you are writing toward. It really actually needs to read like a novel. It needs to be that riveting, that attention-getting. It needs to also have that story arc. And then it is, in some ways, a hero-heroine's journey where there is a full circle, hopefully homecoming, where you see the growth of that person over a period of time. So yeah, that was something I learned really late in the game, that autobiography is very different than memoir. And the pages that I wrote early on back in 2012 and before then were more autobiographical than they were memoir. Those pages were really just for me. And even years later, of course, I saved them. And as I went back to them, they did nothing for me. There was no energy there. It was ideas and accounts that I needed to get out of my body. When I finally got serious, which I feel was in 2013, I got real serious about writing my book. I thought, this is time. I got to buckle down and do it. I told myself that I needed to get away and to create a period of seclusion for myself so I could not be distracted by the things that we're distracted by every day. If we're sitting at home trying to write, how many times are you looking over and noticing that (laughs) your table needs dusted or wow, there is a spot on the floor or, oh, right, I should have done that load of laundry that I see sitting there. There's so many things that can pull you away. I'm mentioning household chores, but there's other things as well. If we have kids or pets and we can get really distracted. So I knew I needed to take myself away into um, into seclusion. So I had a friend at the time, a friend of a friend that had a cabin in the Blue Ridge Mountains. And I went there for a weekend to write my book, what I believed was my story. The book that came out was not a memoir. It was a fiction fantasy story. I would end up seeing the scenes playing in my mind like a movie reel. I was doing my best to write as fast as I could to describe the scene that I was seeing in my mind's eye. So when I came home from that weekend, I had quite a number of chapters and I had to accept the fact that it wasn't the book that I thought I was going to write. For some reason, what came forward was this fiction fantasy book. And for those of you who have been following my work for a long time, you know that I wrote a fiction fantasy series called The Forest Speaks. The first two books in that series are out. Please do not send me an email asking me about the third book. I don't know when, I'm going to say when, I don't know when that book will be written and be out. But that is the story that came out of me. Now, what's interesting about that story, and I won't give away too much in case you want to read it, 
first of all, that story has a lot of similarities to my memoir. They really can't compare. I mean, they're very different stories. But if you look closely enough, you can see, obviously, the main character. I saw a lot of myself in the main character of that story. Her name is Jenna Rose. Saw a lot of myself. Obviously, the mother, for the most part, is loosely based on my mom. The brother, definitely based on my brother, at least a side of him. That challenged me. The Some of the other characters in that book, Lou... That character doesn't exist in real life. And in fact, Lou, she ended up being Jetta's mentor. She was the mentor that I always wished I had when I was younger. She was the spiritual teacher that I had dreams of encountering in a magical way like Jetta did. So in a lot of ways, there were aspects of me and my world that came forward in this story. And yet it was completely fictionalized work of art. I'm sharing this with you because I'm hoping that you're starting to see how messy and how very much non-linear the writing process can be, how it can go in one direction and then you find yourself completely turned around in another direction. and. You can fight it, but honestly, well, you can fight it if that's your choice, of course. But I think what you'll find is that a lot of artists, and I consider myself an artist, I consider writers artists, a lot of artists, we do go through phases where we fight the creative process. And then there's a point of surrender that we just let the art be the art. We let the creation be the creation. We stop trying to force our will upon it. And it takes on a life of its own. And that's what happened to me in the writing of those books. I also had the very clear communication from Spirit that that book was a taste tester. It was both a way of dipping the toe in the water for myself and for the world. It was communicated to me by spirit that people can receive a great deal of healing from a story, inspiration, magic. There's so much a story can do for us. The gift of storytelling has been with humanity for ages. It's one of our earliest forms of entertainment, but it's not just entertainment. Storytelling has been used by cultures the world over to convey truth, to convey lessons, to pass on wisdom. What I understood about the fiction that I was writing was that because it was written in fiction form, people might be able to receive the gifts of the story at whatever level of consciousness they were at without it going through the filter of challenging their belief system, challenging their reality. Now, sometimes I agree, challenging the reality of people is really good. 
But what I mean is that a story can bless us and it doesn't have to be, quote, nonfiction to do so. A fictionalized story or myth has great power. And so there was just some magic there that I don't have to understand. I just knew intuitively that somehow the writing of some of the greater truths that my soul wanted to communicate to humanity, somehow those communicated in fiction form was going to serve at that time. And it probably served me if I'm being completely honest, because I've gone through a journey myself of hiding, not hiding, being seen, not being seen, telling myself I'm being seen and being visible, but really holding back in so many ways. And that has to do with so many of the ways that I personally and those of us who share gifts that are oriented toward the spirit realm, spirit work, those ways of being that are natural for each person alive, but they're often not nurtured or spoken about in our culture. And there's a lot of baggage that goes along with sharing, sharing who we really are. It can be very scary. And so I think that just as much as I understood that the those who would read it would receive the essence and the magic and the healing of the story without having to work through, is this real? Is this not? I also think maybe it created some sort of safety mechanism for me. And I don't know. I'm just, I'm speaking truth now in this moment. I'm articulating it in the way that it's coming forward for me. I don't think that I've ever thought about it in that way, but I'm thinking about it right now here with you. So that's the truth of it. So why am I bringing this forward? As I said, because the writing process and the creative process is so nonlinear. And so I spent um, a couple of years writing a couple of those books, The Four Speaks. Then I put it down and I got really busy teaching and working with clients and students and leading power journeys and spirit trips and all the things. And when 2020 hit, well, we all know 2020 changed the world and changed each of us in different ways, but all of us were changed in some way. And for me, it made me stop. I had to stop. I had so many, I had several trips I had planned that year, a group trips that I was leading international. And I had to cancel those and it gave me an opportunity to refocus on my priorities. And I realized that I needed to just spend, well, almost full time writing this book. And I knew that finally this story, my story, was going to come forward. I knew it. I don't know why I put it off so long other than sometimes for me, and I don't know if this happens to any of you. As long as it's living within us, we can have any kind of idea about it that we want to. 
we can continue to live in an idealized world where it's this perfect vision. It's this perfect dream seed. But the moment we try or we begin to take steps to make it real, we are, re- we are given a lot of feedback by the physical world, by the universe. Now, suddenly, all those romantic ideas of how it was going to be fall away and it becomes very real. And sometimes it's a lot harder than we had anticipated. Sometimes, uh, sometimes we try to bring what we see inside of us into reality and we fall short. We can't quite form it in the way that we saw it within us. I would equate this with how it was for me as long as this book lived within me, the idea of it, even the way that people would receive it. As long as that was just an idea within me, I could dress it up any way I wanted to. I could have great, fantastical dreams and ideas of how it would look, how it would come forward, how it would be received. And so I think that this always maybe gives me a little pause before I bring a creation into the world. Clearly, I stayed in that state for a long time. And then even though at the beginning of 2020, I set out my goals and the ideas I had for what I wanted to bring forward in the year, and the book was at the top of that list, do you know the first two months of 2020, I did not work on the book. All I did was work on the trips that I was planning and leading. I worked on everything else in my business and in my world besides the book. And this is often how it happens, at least for me. And then COVID, lockdown, trips canceled. And that became the doorway for me. I am skirting over a lot of, you know, pain and grieving and emotions that I had around basically giving death to my whole business. But I've shared that in other places, which I'm sure you can have a look at. I'll try to to link to it if I can find some blogs where I talked about that, if that's of interest to you. Once I refocused, the book poured out of me. I crafted scenes rather than told what was happening rather than telling people about something. I showed them. And that old adage that they use to give advice to writers, which is show, don't tell, really landed for me. I understood it at the depths of my being in a way that I hadn't before. I knew that if I wanted to convey something, I needed to convey it with a scene through my life. And I'm the kind of writer that once I get serious, it consumes me. I live, (laughs) eat, and breathe it. I really can't do very much else in terms of business projects and It really becomes my world. And that has advantages and disadvantages. 
Now, I'm going to give a couple of tips here for people that are in this part of the writing. And that is, first of all, don't edit while you're writing. You can if you want to, but it takes a lot more time. And it's not the most, not only is it not the most efficient way, but it can actually dampen your creative spirit. Just let the book pour out of you. Make notes here and there as you're going along. Like for example, if you write something and you think, I need to check the year on that, or I want to add a section in here where I'm really describing something. And in order to do that, I'll need to do a little research. Make a note, highlight it, and keep going. If you get into researching, If you get into going back over and editing, it gets us out of that flow, that right-brained energetic that we really need to bring forward the best of us in the form of words on the page. That is my big tip. (laughs) Don't edit until you have got yourself a nice first draft, then you can go back and start going back through and editing. I probably finished the book in three months. At least I had a first draft in three months. And then I ended up going back over. It probably took me another three months to revise. Then I let two or three close friends read the manuscript. Now, I also have a word of advice and I'm going to offer some counseling here. Be very intentional with who you let read your work. When I selected these people, I was very careful and there were only three of them. And each one I said, listen, this is my first draft. I've gone through it. I've revised it to where I think it you know, it won't be painful. (laughs) I think it'll be somewhat enjoyable, even though I know it needs a lot of polishing. And this is my heart. Please, I want feedback, but I want constructive feedback. Please be gentle with me. Please don't give me feedback on my style of writing. So I I gave very (laughs) firm (laughs) guidelines for the feedback I wanted to receive. And I also said, listen, I do not need punctuation and grammar feedback. I'm going to go back through and do that further. What I'm really looking for is this. And then I told them what I was looking for. You know, let me know if you, if there is a theme that you picked up in the book that I didn't thread all the way through. Let me know if there was a character or a point I made that I never connected the dots, that I never, you saw, oh, this link, (laughs) not internet link, but this, there was, this was never linked. This, these ideas were never connected. You kind of fell off here. That's the information I want because that is what my brain may miss and it may be a blind spot for me. And it may, and so I want you to think about this as well if you're writing, because sometimes we're so close to a story, we 
fill in the blanks inside of us. So when we're reading it, we don't realize that the reader has no idea what we're talking about. We don't realize that we're not saying the full thing. We don't realize that we haven't picked up a thread because in our mind, it's already, it's, it's whole, it's coherent because we have the whole story living within us. And this, I think, happens more in nonfiction than it does probably in fiction, but it can even happen in fiction. If the story is living within us, we may not realize that we didn't, it can even be a scene. And I'm going to get into specific scenes in the book that people have questions about soon, but it may be that a scene, we think we've described it in full, but we've left holes in where a reader who doesn't have backstory or background can't actually make the jump. So I want to counsel anybody to be very selective with those couple readers that you choose because I think early feedback can be really crucial and important. And I also think it can be really detrimental if it doesn't come from a good place, if it is too critical if it, you know, you want constructive feedback. You really do. But yeah, just be really intentional with who you select. But if you can get one or two good people, it can be a game changer, a game changer. I really believe that those first couple people that actually reviewed my book and I'm not talking about the early readers. That was way later in the process. But the first couple people that read my early manuscript, they helped me get it ready. Their feedback was integral to helping me revise the book, fill in different places, holes that I had in such a way that got it ready to then send out to publishers. And ultimately what led to my publisher saying yes to me and my manuscript. I'm going to move on to questions related to the story, the actual material of Initiation, My Fairy Soul Awakening. I still also want to make sure that we have time for the book birthing magic steps. Okay, so the story. What was the intention of this most recent book, Initiation, My Fairy Soul Awakening? In a nutshell, I would say my intention for writing the book was twofold. One, I wanted to share my story because I knew. I just knew that it would be healing for other people. Even if other people did not have the same journey as me, nobody has the same journey as anyone else. We're all very unique in the way that we journey with spirit, nobody has the same journey. And yet hearing other people's journeys can be so inspiring. It can be so inspiring not to tell you what to do, not to tell you how to do it, but it helps you know that first of all, you are not alone, which I say that a lot, but it is really important you are not alone and not everyone has spiritual community, spiritual groups that they are 
close to, connected with. And it can be very hopeful to know that there are others out there that are journeying similar issues, that are journeying similar energetics, similar themes, even if the journey is completely different. I've had so many people write me saying, wow, there are so many similarities to my journey or so many realizations you came to, Diamira, were very much realizations that I came to, but I got there in a different way. In so many ways, our journeys are so similar and they're so different. I've had so many people say that to me. I've also had a lot of people say to me, wow, reading your book made me review so many different moments in my life that I've overlooked. And now I see how spirit was talking to me. Now I see like portals. They were portals into fairy. They were portals into the spirit world. I see now how all along the way, there's been this golden thread. And I just didn't realize it until I read your book and it made me start thinking of my own moments. And these moments people have reported are a lot of times very different than mine. Most people have not traveled to 50 different countries. Most people have not lived overseas. Many people have. And this brings me to another question. Do you think if you hadn't traveled to all the places you mentioned in the book that you still would have awakened or had the same experiences? I believe I still would have awakened. There's a huge question here between fate and free will. And I don't think that I'm going to go into that today. Actually, I know that I'm not. But I would say that we can always choose, of course, to stay asleep, to resist the call of spirit. Of course we can. And it was so burning within me that it became painful. And as you know, it wasn't just my fervent desire to seek and learn and explore the mysteries, but it was also coupled with this traumatic issue, this phobia that also propelled me to seek, to understand, to know. So I feel that it would have become too painful for me not to. And of course, we always still have the choice. That being said, I feel that so the for answer to that first part of the question do i feel do i believe that i would have still awakened yes i do would i have had the same experiences absolutely not i think that would fairy have still reached out its hand to me from the other world and said wake up remember remember who you are probably because that was with me from the time i was little would it have been the same experiences? How could it have been? How could it have been? There are so many experiences. The Glastonbury tour experience is one. It, it was a confluence of energies that included me, 
that included the land, that particular power of place, that included the beings connected to that particular place, that included divine timing. All of those conditions had to be met that time, that place, those energies all had to align to create the experience that unfolded on top of Glastonbury tour for me that I talk about at the beginning of the book. And yet that doesn't mean that there couldn't have been other experiences of power and mystery that may have unfolded at other places on the earth. Could they have unfolded in my own living room? Well, as you continue to read the book, you will see that quite a few experiences unfolded in my living room. But I also feel that we need to get out of our comfort zones in order to invoke experiences of power. And and I'm not using power in the way of power over or any power structure like that. I'm talking about true power, inner power. And I'm talking about the power of a moment, of a place. Raw power is neither good nor bad. It's how we work with that energy and wield it. And in order to invoke that kind of experience, I really feel that we need to get out of our comfort zone. And oftentimes our living room is too comfortable. It has too many, it holds too many patterns, good or bad. It holds too many patterns of how we do life on a day-to-day basis. And I do feel whatever you can do to get out of a comfort zone, and it could be just changing up your routine. It could be going for a walk somewhere you've never gone before. It could be doing some sort of excursion if you never do anything alone. It could be going on an artist date. I love the idea of the artist date from The Artist's Way, the book, The Artist's Way. If you've never worked with the material in that book, it is a wonderful journey to reawaken our inner artist. That is so key to get out of your own way. So I want to go back a little bit because there are a couple questions in what we just covered that I think I want to speak to. Have you met other fairy souls in human form? Yes, absolutely. I've been doing this work for 20 years now. And in my work with colleagues, with people I've met along the way in spiritual communities, in in clients, in students, I have absolutely met (laughs) so many fairy souls. Do they all know that they are fairy souls? No, (laughs) no, they do not. But many of them do. I have quite a few friends and clients who absolutely know and put a voice to the knowing that they are fairy. They have fairy energy. They are fairy souls. Almost none of them have had the same 
well, none of them have had the same journey as me. Of course, we've talked about the uniqueness of each person's journey, but they're not even showing up in the world in the same way. Each person has their own way that they are meant to express that energy, that sacred identity. And it's not about returning to fairy. I want to make that very clear. And I mentioned this in the book. It is not about going back to the past. But I don't want to overlook that reviewing the past could be important for that reclamation, for that remembrance. It also may require healing, different layers, different memories, different soul experiences. But a return or a traveling to fairy, and in this case, I'm using the word to talk about the actual place, the realm, a return to fairy to hang out there, to escape, to live in la-la land while life in the physical happens around us is so not the point. And yet, if we have feelings of longing, feelings of sadness, feelings of nostalgia, those also are not to be denied and There's no reason to feel any shame around those feelings. Those feelings can be doorways into our healing. Let's first of all acknowledge that we do have longing. And how can that longing be a doorway or a portal for us into healing and also into perhaps a reclamation? Have we left a part of us in another time, another place? This happens all the time. If we have dreams about another time, another place, it could be that we've left a part of our energy there that we need to reclaim. And I feel for me that that was part of this journey and it is continued to be part of the journey after the time period which I ended the book at. How do I fully own who I am and then act from that place of knowing, but not be lost in the past. So yes, I've met other fairy souls. They don't always know, but many of them do to have the remembrance, the knowing, the affirmation, the confirmation that you are a fairy soul is not about going back to the past, but it's about how can that identity of all of you be fully anchored here so that then you can express your uniqueness, your essence in your world and ultimately be a blessing for yourself and others. And the other caveat I want to mention here is being fairy does not make anyone more special than someone else. I talk actually a lot about what it means to be fairy. And really I go into some specifics and an earlier episode I did called Rise. And I'll link to that in the show notes. 
But what I want to share here is that being fairy does not make us special. Any more special than anyone else, everyone is special in their uniqueness. So my intention is to never create some sort of spiritual elitism. Let just let go of that. (laughs) Okay, next question. What do I think really happened when I went to Glastonbury for the first time? I understood what happened had something to do with the ley lines of the land, something to do with the earth's energy systems. And somehow my work, my energy affected those energy systems in what I believe to be a positive way. Glastonbury Tor is said to be where two ley lines converge, the Michael line and the Mary line. Even my earliest written accounts in my journals of this event, I referred to what happened as a releasing of the ley lines of the land. I can say, looking back now with my current understanding of the Earth's energy systems, and let me say that my experience with the Earth's energy systems, and by energy systems, I mean the chakras of the planet, the vortexes, the ley lines, the grid lines, the nodal points. All of these make up, all of these elements make up the Earth's energy system. And I have been working with the Earth's energy system since that moment in Glastonbury. I have been working with the Earth's energy systems very regularly and consciously for at least a decade, where I have been invited by the energies of the land, by the beings and spirits of the land, by the ancestors of a particular area to come to that place to co-create to partner and ally with the energies there, with the dream of that land, to support healing, to facilitate harmony and harmonization. This happens both because the earth has spots that just like we get blockages in our energy system, so does the earth. It can happen from events such as war or battle It can also happen as a result of some natural disaster or disturbance. The reasons for these blockages are many. And in the past, the ancients actually worked with these energies. They tended them. They stewarded them. They worked with the the dragons on the planet. And the dragons, of course, support the energy flows with their movements. The dragons and the energy flows and energy system of Gaia are inseparable. So this all was a body of knowledge that was known by many long, long ago. And the energies were worked with consciously, just like in the past, there might have been temples of healing 
such as the ones in Greece and Turkey, in order to help people heal. Temples that included sound technology and crystal technology that actually restored our own energy systems and energy frequency to be more in alignment with our natural rhythm. The same can be said for the land. As above, so below. As without, so within. Our energy systems are not very different from the energy systems of the land itself. And just like our energy systems can get out of balance, so can the land. So my understanding of that moment in time has to do with a harmonization of the energy of the land in Glastonbury. I feel there was a block in the land and I have ideas about what that block was caused from. But regardless of my theories around that, that blockage was creating what I referred to as a dam of blocked up energy that was preventing the full expression of the nature grid, the full expression of the inner ecology of that geographic area. And yes, I think that it affected the beings that were there. How could it not? It probably affected anyone, the human beings and any of the non-human beings. It affected beings like Gwyn. It affected beings like the nature spirits. It affected the whole ecology. And I happen to be in the right place at the right time. And yes, we can bring in the whole conversation about divine appointment. And there is something to be said about, how do I want to say this? I want to say, I there's something I used to say to my students. And sometimes when I was doing interviews, you might hear this, that I would say, the job is not given to those of us who are special. The job is given to those of us who answer the call. How many times have you gotten an intuitive nudge or guidance to do something, go somewhere? How many times have you answered that? That's really as simple as this can be. Were there others who could have done this work? Probably. I happen to say yes. I happen to be in the right place at the right time because I made choices and took certain actions along the way that put me there. Now, by the same token, it's important to mention that the call goes out to those by right of vibration. Let me elaborate. This has nothing to do with high vibration, low vibration, or any of that nonsense or any kind of spiritual elitism. What I mean by right of vibration is that there has to be a resonance. Does everybody receive the same call? 
whether they're listening or not, whether they can hear it or not. Does everybody in the whole world get the same call? Absolutely not. Why would we? We're all very different. We all have our own path and what is ours to do. And what is yours to do is not mine to do. And so what I mean when I say by right of vibration, I mean that condition number one, I had to be in the right place at the right time, meaning that I actually had to take steps to get myself there. I had to not only hear and receive the intuitive nudge, but I had to follow that breadcrumb and take those action steps. No way around that. And then I received that call. I was able to do what I did in that particular place at that particular time because there was some sort of energetic configuration within me that was a resonant match to the energetic configuration of that moment, that land, that energy. We can go down a, rabbit, a lot of rabbit holes explaining this, talking about soul contracts and past lives and also ancestral blood ancestry. And these are all parts of the conversation. And some of them are meant to be a mystery. Sometimes we receive an intuitive nudge. We get called to a particular location or to do some particular activity. And we don't know why. I didn't know why. It was, would be many years and much journeying before I learned further what my connection was to that place and to that being, that being called Gwyn. Which brings me to the next question. Who is Gwyn? You never talk more about him in the book. That, my friend, is on purpose. During the time period that the book covers, Gwyn was consistently absent. I believe he served as a catalyst to wake me up and initiate me into the fairy mysteries, initiate me into the path of my fairy soul remembrance. And then he disappeared. He wasn't a guide that suddenly saddled up next to me and we journeyed along. He did not become part of my tutelage and mentorship on the inner planes. That was carried out mostly by the fairy queens who I talk about in the book. It was also carried out by other beings I don't mention in the book, like Yeshua, Mary Magdalene, and Mother Mary. I don't talk about those particular 
experiences with them because as I mentioned earlier, it's important to stay focused and not tell every single detail. If I had shared with you every account of my inner world explorations, it would have been overwhelming and it would have been hard to see the story threads. It's my job or your job as the writer to actually really cultivate and pull out those story threads and paint those and make sure that you're not distracting (laughs) with minutia. That is important to me, no doubt, and significant in their own right, but would not develop the story. However, that is not the case with Gwyn. I did not leave anything out with him, but he was not a part of that time period, and he was not present. I never questioned this. It was just something that I accepted. So you're just going to have to wait and see if he remains absent or if in the next book or the next chapter of my life that changes. You'll have to wait and see. Okay, this is the last question, I think. I want to understand more about the Rainbow Bridge. Is it the same bridge as in Norse mythology? I had no knowledge of Norse mythology, nor did I have knowledge of Yggdrasil, the World Tree, or the Rainbow Bridge. The Rainbow Bridge in Norse mythology is a transport mechanism that is used to connect from one world to another. These different realms, I believe there are nine of them, are located somewhere on the world tree known as Drazzle. And this is the Norse cosmology. Drazzle, it was said that, that's the name of the world tree, was said to have realms in its upper branches, realms Midgard in the trunk, and realms in the lower root system. And Bifrost, the Rainbow Bridge, connected these realms and made it possible to travel from one realm to another. However, at the time when I had this memory, this remembrance of standing on the Rainbow Bridge, I had no knowledge of that Norse cosmology at all. To me, Bifrost is a living symbol. And even though I had no understanding of Norse mythology, I think it just goes to show at that time, I think it just goes to show like, wow, these universal symbols, these living symbols are energies that any of us can tap into. We, it's just cool when we read it in the book and then we say, wow, that's exactly what I experienced before I even had any understanding of that. So what more can I say about that? for me, that experience for me is that the rainbow bridge really was, this was not meant to be figurative. It was very literal. Obviously, as I was making that journey on the rainbow bridge, I was not in human form. And 
who knows what the time period of that was. And so the earth may have been in a very different state of physicality and density at that time. We don't know. But what I do know is I didn't mean it figuratively at all. It's very, it was a very literal experience of using a spiritual technology that yes, the majority of us humans are not familiar with, or if we are, it's only we're familiar with it in vision. And as we travel, you know, whether we're traveling out-of-body experiences or shamanically or however we're making those inner world journeys, and we may use the rainbow bridge. But in this particular instance, uh, my remembrance, it was not just something I was doing in vision. It was actually happening. I was using a spiritual technology and walking across a bridge that was a rainbow. And that facilitated my transition from fairy into human consciousness. Okay, so I promised that I would end with my book birthing magic steps. <laughs> so this was a conversation I had between a friend of mine, Amelia, two or three years ago. And she wanted to know about my the writing process that I I shared and then the next day she had sent me an email and she had pulled out and distilled from our conversation these key points that I had spoken to. So she distilled these, but these were my words. So number one, and this is for people if you're thinking about writing a book. What if writing the book is a journey worth it in and of itself? regardless if anyone reads the book or not. I can attest to this because even though my heart deeply wants this book to be shared with such a wide readership, I mean, who doesn't want their work shared and to bless many people? However, the writing of this book was so healing for me and it helped me integrate these events, these early events, and this early phase at an even deeper level. Number two, what if writing the book is a foundation for the next chapter in your life and going through the journey of writing it is a surrender to the integration and processing that must happen for you to go to the next iteration? The Ravens agree. (laughs) I don't know if you can hear them. Number three, what if the book is the main show, the main entree, and not the dessert or a side dish? What if that's just what you're meant to be doing right now is birth this book? And to give context, what I meant there was we were talking about so often in so many people see the book as somehow uplifting their work or complementing their work or being an augment in some way to their work. And I was saying, what if that's not the case? What if it's not just meant to complement your work? What if the book is your work? That was one way I meant it. And then the other way that we were talking about it around that moment was I was also saying, you know, sometimes 
not everyone can do this, but sometimes the book, we give it very little space in our life for it to unfold. And what I mean is maybe we give ourselves an hour a week. Maybe we give ourselves five minutes a day. That, if that's all you have, that is amazing. And I shared for me, I'm the kind of person I, it just, I can't write a book over 10 years. The whole issue I see with spending that much time writing a book is that our voice changes over 10 years. Our way that we see things changes over 10 years. So if we're spending 10 years writing it, no wonder we're spending 10 years writing it because we're, we just keep changing. Every few years we change and then we have to rewrite the whole thing to align with how we've evolved. So I personally think that writing a book in a shorter time period, and it doesn't have to be a few months like I do, but a year is really helpful to be consistent in your voice, to be consistent in your thought patterns. Of course, it's okay and you want to show an evolution, especially if it's a memoir of growth with the character. Absolutely. But you want to have a consistent energetic. And that becomes more difficult if you write it, if you stretch out your writing over so long. And so if you can, even if you take a weekend every month, you know, maybe you don't have the ability to use more time during your week. Maybe it has to be focused on other work that you're doing to bring in money and livelihood. But then can you take a week and a month so you really can just have that full focus and dedication to your craft? So that's what I, I meant both of those things when I said the main show rather than a side dish. Number four, unjunking is important, allowing a mind dump so the flow of the book can be written. This is so key. I mentioned earlier about not editing your work until you're at the actual intentional phase of editing. And it is just as important to allow the stream of consciousness to flow, even if it's words, even if it's thoughts that will never ever land up in the book. It needs to come out so that the magic that is living within you can actually come through. Usually that wise, eloquent (laughs) story or wise, eloquent guidance, usually that is hiding behind a bunch of mind chatter and subconscious crud that you need to clear out in order to allow for a free flow of what I call that magical aliveness, that essence to just pour out of you. And it will pour out of you if you just let yourself go without trying to spend a hundred years crafting one perfect sentence. Those Perfect sentences. I'm telling you the ones that are so beautiful. I, and 
the ones that are so like, oh my goodness, that is just gold, the way that that came out, those come not because I sat there and thought about them for hours, but they come because I just let myself write. And it wasn't the first sentence or the 18th sentence in the paragraph, but it's like maybe the 50th sentence in the paragraph that is just gold. And when you go back in the editing process, that's what you're going to be polishing up. You're going to be pulling out all the junk and all of the um, non-gold <laughs> so that you can have that real polished and pristine manuscript. Number five, staying out of editing mode and into channeling mode is key. I already spoke to that. Number six, what if your book is a being and has a soul? Can you connect with the soul of your book? Okay, this is also, I did not mention this, but this is a huge way that I work, which is I actually connect to the soul or what I call the deva of my book. I do this early on. I've already done this with the next book that I'm writing. And it is so important. And I will even connect with the deva of my book for wisdom, guidance, advice, (laughs) mentorship, something isn't working, or I'm in a rut, or I'm stuck, or any number of things can happen in the whole writing experiment. And sometimes you work through it via writing, and other times, I don't know, I'm just banging my head so much up against a wall that I need a little, I need a little um, bit of a bird's eye view. And so at that point, I connect into the Dave of my book. I actually do what many of you are probably familiar with, a guided journey. I lead myself in my own guided journey. It's kind of a shamanic journey. I don't use that word very much, but it is basically a shamanic journey. And and because the journey speaks to me in symbols that I will understand, Other times I go into a sacred place in my inner world where I can meet the Deva of my book and we just actually have a dialogue and that can be very powerful as well. It just depends on where I'm at and what my needs are. So that is something I really encourage you to try. If you're already writing your book, there is, it is not too late. Connect. Your book has a spirit. Your book has a soul. Connect with the Deva of your book and see what happens. Okay, number seven, flow writing by hand if you need to, but set sacred space and calling guides and direction for using the computer. It's more efficient. Okay, so there's a a few pieces here. First, when I begin my writing, almost any time I sit down to write, I generally set sacred space. And the way I do that is very simple. In fact, I find the more simple, the better, because then it doesn't take up too much time. And I don't talk myself out of sitting down and writing, which can happen a lot. And I, it can vary, but basically I usually light a candle. If I feel there's energetic clutter, I will do some sort of clearing, whether that's with some herbs that I'm going to light and use the smoke to clear the space, or maybe I'm using salt water spray to clear the space or any number of other ways that you might clear space. Sometimes you need that first. Then I light a candle, set my intention that this is sacred space and I'm opening it up. And then I call 
in support. And what that looks like is I actually have a book committee, beings that I partner with that are interested in what I'm writing coming into the world. So maybe they're interested, maybe they play a part in the story and I call them in. Maybe they're interested because they're beings that, for example, muses have an interest in inspiring humanity. And so maybe I'll call a particular muse in, or maybe I'll call a certain ally in that has some affinity with either writing or they have some knowledge or I want their support. Now, I do not personally call in everyone. I mean, I work with a lot of beings and I work with different beings for different things, just like different humans. You have friends and some friends are maybe your shopping friends. I'm making this super superficial, so it's really easy to understand, but some friends are your shopping friends. Some friends are the friend that you're going to call to go have a glass of wine at, at a nice restaurant. Maybe you have a foodie friend. And then maybe you have a friend you would never, maybe they don't even drink and you would never call them up for a glass of wine or, or to enjoy food because that's not their vibe, but you would call them up to talk about a creative endeavor or a, an inner world journey that you had or a dream that you had. You know, we have our different friends. It's the same thing for me on the inner planes. Different friends, (laughs) I call on different friends to come in and hang out depending on what I'm working on. And I don't want to go too far down a tangent, but I just realized I can't, I I just have to say this because it just feels, it feels better and more integrity for me. I do not work with guides by like calling in beings and then their own, you know, I'm my only connection with them is to call them in when I need something. That is not the relationship I have with spirit beings or with being subtle realm beings or with fairy beings at all. I don't think I would have much of a relationship if that was how I worked with them. Relationship is key to forming bonds and I think being more effective in our spirit work because we have to be willing to give as much as we're willing to take. And if I'm calling beings in to support me, you better believe that I have a relationship with these beings, that I'm not just calling them in when I want something, that I may call one of them in to, and say, hey, I'm going for a walk today. You want to hang out? And we go for a walk and just shoot the shit and talk. And, you know, and I learn about them or learn what they're experiencing. This is how I live and how I journey my spirit work is I form relationships. I make offerings and offerings to me are not about deifying, but about giving a gift, a token of love, a token of appreciation, just like we would to a friend. So I find ways to feed the relationship, to cultivate the relationship. And I think that you will find you will be much more successful in your endeavors if you're not only calling on your spirit team or beings that you work with, guides, allies, guardians, when you want something, but that you actually take an interest in how can you give to the relationship and how can you give to them. In fact, 
If you have not been doing it like this and you try, I would love to hear from you. If you want to send me an email, connect at diamirarose.com and you can send us an email and let me know how it changes your relationship and your work with spirit when you start doing this. Okay, just a couple of more. Hopefully these are really helpful. Okay, number eight, writing becomes its own world, so let it happen. I've talked about this. Number nine, don't go back to ordinary reality. Put post-it notes all around your house to remind you that you're pregnant with the book and you'll be birthing it. This is good advice and I shall take it myself because I have started this, the writing of this next book, but I actually have not done this. And so I am going to do this because <laughs> that is a great idea. Diamira, thank you. Um, <laughs> number 10, what if your purpose is writing the book and it's easily in front of you? You just need to say yes. And with that, I will leave you for today, my friends. Thank you so much for listening. Remember, if you haven't yet, definitely consider grabbing a copy of Initiation, My Fairy Soul Awakening. If you're a writer or any kind of artist, you know that we want to share our creations with the world. And I want to share this one with you. So thank you so very much. And I will see you next time.